These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. The Queen of Kanesh gave birth to 30 children in a single year, all boys. Now, for the younger listeners in the audience, let me tell you that this is, biologically speaking, very unlikely, and probably quite painful. Her first reaction, upon recovering from the stress of labor, of course, has been puzzling historians ever since. You see, some people think that there may have been an ancient tradition of matriarchy in parts of Anatolia, of which this semi-mythic Queen of Kanesh is one representative, and which filtered to the Greeks after quite a bit of exaggeration as the legend of the Amazons. And so, when this Queen of Kanesh realized that her entire massive litter was all boys, she was repulsed. She didn't fall to direct infanticide, she wasn't that much of a monster, but they did have to be gotten rid of. So, she packed the 30 infant boys on a small boat and floated them down the river to the Black Sea. However, in our tale, the native gods of the Anatolians, who we nowadays know of only in fragments, took pity on the boys and washed them up on the shore and raised them in the land of Zalpua sometimes called Zalpa, somewhere near the Pontic coast. They had a quiet and happy childhood under the watchful gaze of the gods. Meanwhile, a few years after the boys had been born and cast aside, the Queen of Kanesh bore another 30 children, but these were all girls, and so she kept them and raised them happily in Kanesh. Time passes, as time does, and after some time, the boys are now men, and it's time for them to go out in the world to make their fortune. They form a 30-man merchant company and buy a donkey and begin to wander around Anatolia. One day, they find themselves at an inn in the town of Tamarmara and find cause to complain to the innkeeper. You've given us a heated room, they said. Apparently, all 30 of them and the donkey will be sharing quarters. Don't you know that this will make the donkey aroused and he will be trying to copulate with us all night? The innkeeper was dismissive, saying, Everyone knows donkeys will try and copulate with anything in any case. The boys, in an attempt to discredit the idea of conventional wisdom, retort, Well, Everyone knows that women only give birth to one child at a time, but our mother birthed all 30 of us at once. Not that much of a zinger, and the innkeeper wasn't impressed. So what? Everyone knows that the Queen of Kanesh bore 30 sons in a year, and then repeated the feat with girls a few years later, which is twice as impressive, even if the sons are now missing. Well... The boys looked at each other and realized this must be their long-lost mother, and they hurried on over to Kanesh. They met with their mother, the queen, but it seems that having lived with the gods for a time had changed their appearance a bit. Now, they were super hot, and also unrecognizable as the queen's sons. And so, in pretty short order, the queen was offering marriage to her 30 daughters to these essentially random hot boys. And they seem to have gotten pretty far into the arrangements, since the next thing we know, the 30 brothers are about to marry their 30 sisters, when the youngest boy speaks up. Isn't this incest? he asks the group. 
Aren't we about to offend the gods? Let's not do this. It's a bad idea. And the only written copy of this legend ends here, with the youngest son warning against a very taboo act. The ending of the legend is speculation, but given what we know about the history of Kanesh, Zalpua, and the neighboring states, we can make some educated guesses to fill in the blanks. Almost certainly, the tale was meant to end with the incestuous and god-cursed marriages taking place despite the youngest son's warnings. Though many cultures have frowned upon incest, sexual crimes in Anatolia were considered to be particularly heinous offenses against the gods, and this would be a black stain on the name of Zalpua soon enough. It seems likely that the thirty husband brothers and sister wives moved back to Zalpua, but soon had some sort of conflict with Kanesh over some sort of important emblem, perhaps a stella or holy icon. The Zalpuans came in force and stole the icon, destroying much of Kanesh at the same time. This legend parallels the historical destruction of Karam Kanesh at around the same time, known from the records of the Assyrian merchants who had their colony there. Sadly, we've yet to recover anything from the merchants themselves to shed light onto the destruction of Kanesh, and much of the story I'm telling you now comes from much later sources and is, of course, regarded as at least semi-mythic. All we can say for sure is that sometime around 1780 BCE, the city of Kanesh was looted by a Zalpuan king named Uhna, possibly in an alliance with the northern Hattian kingdom, who were already establishing themselves as the biggest of many small fish in the Anatolian pond. Did Kanesh irritate its neighbors with its control over the Anatolian trade networks? Did as our legend suggests, a marriage agreement go wrong? Or did some opportunity for victory present itself which the Zalpuans took advantage of? Perhaps in a decade or two, some History of Anatolia podcast will be able to update this story with information from new archaeological discoveries. After a few decades, Kanesh appears to have been resettled, this time without any matriarchal power structures, if indeed they'd ever existed. Good sites for cities are not quite so common in Anatolia, and its position on the trade routes likely means it was never completely destroyed, just much reduced for a time. It isn't long before Kanesh is again throwing its weight around, invading the neighboring kingdom of Mama, which, despite its name, is also not a matriarchy. Kanesh wins pretty big, and some sort of treaty favorable to Kanesh is concluded with Mama. This peace lasted for a generation, but under the next king of Kanesh, a Kaneshite vassal who ruled over the otherwise obscure borderland of Taisama raided into Mama's territory, sacking multiple small towns. The king of Mama sent an indignant letter which still survives to this day, complaining of this. You've written to me, saying, The man of Taisama is my slave. I shall keep watch over him. But will you keep watch over the man of Sibuha, your slave? But if the man of Taisama is your dog, why does he quarrel with other princes? Does my dog, the man of Sibuha, quarrel with other princes? 
Will a king of Taisama become a third king with us? When my enemy attacked on a different front, the man of Taisama took advantage and invaded my country, and destroyed twelve of my cities, carried away their cattle and sheep. He spoke as follows, The king is dead, so I have taken what I can. Instead of protecting my country and giving me heart, he not only burned up my country, but created an evil-smelling smoke. When your father was laying siege for nine years to the city of Harsamna, did my people take advantage of the distraction to invade your land? Did they kill a single ox or sheep? The two little states have a relatively extensive record of diplomatic correspondence following this incident, largely confirming the general picture we get from this letter. The two kings, like most of their peers in the other Anatolian princedoms, ruled principally through vassals, the rulers of other, tinier states who had been beaten down and were now expected to act as slaves and loyal dogs of their masters. But of course, the distance between a king and a vassal prince in the political patchwork of Anatolia was not so great as their rhetoric in these letters makes it out to be, and the king of Mama was probably quite sensible in asking the king of Kanesh if this vassal lord of Taisama had greater ambitions. Additionally, note in this letter the implicit expectation that the Anatolian kingdoms behave themselves with a certain level of decorum. The vassals must be kept in line, and kingdoms should not make opportunistic attacks on distracted neighbors. Later in these negotiations, the king of Kanesh asks if they should renew their vows of friendship upon settling this and some other matters, to which the king of Mama replies, Is the former oath insufficient? Let your messengers come to me, and my messengers come to you. Though we speak of this period as one of near-constant warfare, indeed it seems likely that not a year went by without some sort of armed attack in some part of the peninsula, we shouldn't overstate the level of violence either. Diplomacy was the first resort of the major kingdoms, and those who didn't follow the rules could see themselves the target of an angry coalition. The stick was always there, but only in service to larger goals. We will see both the vassalage system and the real politic mix of diplomacy and violence as our story continues. But for now, it seems that peace has finally settled upon the refounded city of Kanesh. At least, until Pitana of Kusara appears on the scene. Historically, our only inscription of him is a bit of an oddity, but one that might actually cast a hint of light on our earlier legendary narrative. The tale proper ended with the youngest son being ignored and the thirty incestuous marriages taking place, but some have read the later fragments to suggest that the Queen of Kanesh, in despair for the sacking of her city by the Zalpuans, offered another marriage to any king who would save her from this terrible enemy. Here, Pitana would appear as a savior, spending the strength of the kingdom of Kusara in defense of Kanesh. An unlikely story, and one that we could easily disregard as later propaganda, if it weren't for the most important historical text of early Anatolia, the Anita inscription. This text gives an account of King Anita and his father, Pitana, and begins by telling us that Pitana came in the nighttime and overwhelmed the city of Kanesh in a single overwhelming assault. 
but that once the kingship was seized, he inflicted no harm on the inhabitants of Kanesh. Instead, he made them as his mothers and fathers. This last sentence is most puzzling, a unique formulation among the very formulaic catalog of official cuneiform proclamations. Pitana took Kanesh, but instead of plundering it as we would expect, he establishes strong bonds of kinship between himself and his new conquest. What sort of dynastic or palace politics this represents may never be known, but it's from this conquest of Kanesh that the ball really gets rolling for something much bigger. The capital of Pitana's new, larger kingdom would be moved to Kanesh, also called Nessa in the local language, and the official language spoken by the rulers would now be Nesili, the particular dialect of Kanesh. Almost certainly, Pitana of Kusara spoke the same language in a very similar dialect, since though both Kusara and Kanesh were ruled by Indo-Europeans, there's no sense in any of this that there is an ethnic coalition being formed here, just a move from a less wealthy and prestigious capital to a more prominent one. Pitana's contribution to history, at least as far as his son was concerned, was the conquest of Kanesh and the birth of Anita himself. But as Anita comes to power, he finds himself in a particularly advantageous situation. Ruling over one of the most prosperous cities of Anatolia, with a fair number of minor vassals paying him tribute, his territory overlooks some of the greatest kingdoms of the age. His first year sees some of these vassals revolt, but they're put down and the new king's power is confirmed. Internal enemies are followed up by external threats, and we get the sense that Anita may have had an exceedingly large mouth. Zalpua had stolen some sort of idol from Kanesh back during the Great Sack of 1780, and now Anita vowed to end this multi-generational feud with violence. However, the conquests of his father, which likely extended at least a bit beyond Kanesh himself, had made his neighbors wary of Anita gaining any more power and upsetting the balance of the region. And so, when he threatened the somewhat distant kingdom of Zalpua on the Black Sea coast for the return of Kanesh's idol, he incited a coalition of every major state north of him, including the region's major power, the Hattians. It can be hard to disentangle the Hattians from the people who succeeded them, but at this time, they're a kingdom ruling over most of a small ethno-linguistic group that's either native to central Anatolia or has been there a long time. The kingdom of the Hattians is based out of Hattusha, sometimes called Hattush when under Hattian control and Hattusha later. They're a people and a city that will play a substantial role in the story to come. For now, though, they're simply the largest of many Anatolian kingdoms, and one that's decided to back the Zalpuans against Anita's aggressive advances. We know sadly nothing about what the ensuing war looked like, but Zalpua was destroyed by Kanesh and its king taken prisoner, where, presumably, nothing good came of him. The idol was recovered, but the war was far from over. The apparently mighty army of Anita laid siege to the incredibly well-fortified city of Hattusha, 
Indeed, the site will later be noticed on multiple occasions as one of the most easily defended locations in Anatolia, and on the first attack, they were rebuffed. Trying again in the next campaign season, they were able to starve the city out, and during another night attack, an apparently a favored tactic of this dynasty, Anita was able to overwhelm the weakened defenders and put the city to the torch. The inhabitants were enslaved or killed, its wealth carted up, and Anita declared in his inscription for future generations to heed that the site of the city was now accursed. May the storm god strike down anyone who becomes king after me and resettles Hattusha. Next up, Anita had the need to conquer the city-state of Salatiwara, located along a key trading road and indicating that control of the trade routes was a vital strategic concern in these campaigns. Fighting a pitched battle against the mustered forces of the smaller city, Anita put the enemy to rout and pillaged the area, enslaving all who got in his way. But when the campaign season ended, the insolent Salatawarans refused to actually submit despite their decisive loss on the battlefield, and so Anita's army returned to level the city, returning another massive pile of slaves and loot to the capital at Kanesh. Interestingly, 40 teams of horses are noted in the plunder, somewhat predating our first mention of horses in the Mesopotamian record, though, given how uncertain Anita's dates are, it's hard to say by how much. The king of Kanesh paused at this point to take stock of all his newfound plunder and territory deciding that the best course of action would be to embark on a massive building project in his capital, no doubt building a city for the ages. Mostly what was recorded was just how lavish everything was, with dozens of pounds of gold and silver measured out all over the place, and a royal menagerie established which housed lions, leopards, pigs, goats, and deer. Hopefully not all in the same pen. Trade with Assyria had a final flourishing under Anita's rule, though the increased role of native Anatolian traders and the general increase in military activity, much of it caused by Anita himself, saw the Assyrians finally pushed out amidst their general decline in fortunes following the collapse of Shamsiadad's Upper Mesopotamian Empire and Hammurabi's ascent in Babylon. In general, though, things in the Kingdom of Kanesh were pretty good, but Anita had his sights set on one more thing. The city of Purushanda, probably a bit to the southwest of Kanesh, had been the high point of Sargon of Akkad's conquests into Anatolia, and much later was the Anatolian leader of a coalition against Sargon's grandson, Naram-Sim. The city had done well for itself under Akkadian rule, and continued to do well after the Akkadian Empire collapsed. The ancient and venerable city may have passed up and down in fortunes over the years, but the pedigree of the ruling house was such that they were able to claim a title that may have been unique in the region, Ruba'um Rabi'um, generally translated as Great King. Now, Anita wanted the territory of the Great King to the south, but more importantly, it seems that Anita wanted this prestigious title for himself, to elevate his own throne above those of his neighbors. And so again, Anita called up his impressive army and marshaled his by now well-honed strategies and tactics. 
bringing the full might of a conquering king against the Purushandans. And as his army marched into battle against the ancient city, the king of Purushanda himself came out before the assembled warhost. He announced that Anita would not have to fight, and presented him an iron throne and an iron scepter. Remember that this is still well into the Middle Bronze Age. This quantity of iron was a remarkable thing. And with his voluntary submission, Anita took the title of Great King. He took the offered gifts, and he took the former Great King himself, now merely the man of Purushanda, and set him up in Kanesh in a vassal throne, which sat to the right of Anita's own throne. Symbolically, Kanesh absorbed Purushanda bloodlessly, and in return, the former king was allowed to continue ruling as a vassal. With this peaceful conquest, Anita had established the largest unified political order that Anatolia had ever seen, dominating the eastern portion of the peninsula from the Black Sea on down most of the way to Syria. Local leaders still retained a great deal of autonomy under this Kusaran dynasty, but the power bases they ruled over had been broken up and subjected to the central authority. Finally, peace ruled across the once turbulent land, and the roads were clear for merchants and peaceful travelers. Kanesh built itself up into a progressively larger city on the wealth of tribute and trade. And then, when Anita died, the entire empire collapsed back into anarchy, each vassal fighting his neighbors more furiously than they had before the brief Kusaran dynasty had silenced them, and the last of the Assyrian merchant colonies winked out of existence, darkening once again the light of history for a time. For how long was history silent? Because we have no real way to place Anita solidly in history, and our next historical figures will be known only vaguely, it's impossible to tell. On the order of decades is the usual conclusion, possibly a few dozen years on either side of 1700 BCE. But when the archaeologists look at this period, they see a time of intense conflict, where numerous cities fall to ruin, and when history returns to Anatolia, many of the once familiar place names will be gone, replaced with newly emergent powers. But one place will remain. The city of Kusara, home of Pitana, father of Anita, will at some point give rise to a new king. We can't say for certain that King Labarna I was related to Anita, but circumstantial evidence suggests that he may have been, both from the fact that he's from the same city and the fact that his grandson, at least, will bear the title Great King, probably inherited from at least this time, if not from some more distant ancestor like Anita himself. Of course, whether he was or wasn't related to Anita, later kings would point to Labarna in particular as a new dynastic founder, a later history recording the following as the very first act of a distinctly Labarnan kingdom. Formerly, Labarna was the great king. Then were his sons, his brothers, his relations by marriage, his relations by blood, and his troops united. And the land was small. 
But on whatever campaign he went, he held the lands of the enemy in subjugation by his might. He kept devastating the lands, and he deprived the lands of power, and he made them boundaries of the sea. But when he returned from the field, each of his sons went to the various lands to govern them. This history, written by the much later king Tilipanu, then goes on to list the various lands and sons of Labarna. That is as far as detail goes, not even as much as we got from the earlier Anita, and many of the places listed are uncertain as to their location. However, we get a sense from this and from a later passage that in a single generation, Labarna was able to extend control over much of central eastern Anatolia once again, possibly as far as the Black Sea. The means by which this conquest was accomplished, both by Labarna and by Anita, is also unclear. How organized was the warfare of this age, and did the Kusarans hold any particular advantage in that area? The city of Kusara itself has never been clearly identified by archaeologists, so not only can we not say exactly where it was located, we also can't point to the city and note some special advantage it may have had over its neighbors. Or, it's also possible that Kusara itself had no particular advantage, and that instead its success is owed completely to the military skill of its successive kings. Certainly, later on in the dynasty, we will see many examples of both skilled generalship and competent diplomacy. There isn't even grounds to really speculate well, and the only other thing we know about Labarna comes from his grandson, who is kind enough to leave us the first few solid historical mentions that can be dated from sometime between 1650 to 1620 BCE, most of them probably later in that reign. Of his grandfather Labarna, he says, Did not my grandfather's sons set aside his words? He appointed his son Labarna in the city of Sanahuita. But subsequently, his servants and great men defied his word and placed Papadilma on the throne. How many years have passed and how many have escaped their punishment? Where are the houses of the great men? Have they not perished? Now, this is clearly more of a moralizing declaration than an historical one, but from it we can surmise a few things. First of all, Labarna soon became a name synonymous with kingship, much in the same way that Caesar would change from a name to a title in the later Roman Empire. Labarna I had set up his favored son to rule over a particular city, probably as training wheels before he gets his hands on a full kingdom. But it would appear that when he arrived in Sanahuita, the people of the city rebelled against him, either as a representative of the Kusaran kingdom, or because the younger Labarna personally had a poor reputation. In the aftermath of this coup, the disfavored sons may have broken away from the greater kingdom, leaving the elder Labarna ruling over nothing but his original capital, Kusara. Lubarna I does not appear to have survived long past this rebellion before himself passing away, and so unclear is the family tree in all this that we can't really tell if he passed the throne to a son who accomplished very little, or if the crown passed directly to his grandson. 
Was this grandson related to the son who was rebelled against, or was he simply the most capable of the descendants who stayed loyal to his grandfather? However the relations worked, this grandson came to power again, ruling over nothing more than Kusara and some empty nearby fields. The great central kingdom had once again fallen apart after a conqueror's death. The third Labarna, a man who will come to call himself Hattushili, and who will be remembered in history as Hattushili I, is again starting from nothing, with all his neighbors at his throat. You may well be wondering about all the ups and downs of all this, but rest assured we've finally arrived at the destination we set out for at the start of this episode. If you look at your podcast player, you may see that the episode is entitled Rise of the Hittites. And yet, up to this point, I haven't said the word Hittite once. We've been following the exploits of Kusarans, Kineshites, and other minor kingdoms. These conquerors who have been leading up to Hattushili I have all been of Indo-European origin, but the language they spoke was Nisili, the common tongue of the trade hub in Kanesh. Where then do the Hittites appear? It turns out that this matter is a bit more complicated than a straight line in the sand, beyond which we can say, here be Hittites. Plenty of history books will tell you that it is at the man with whom we've ended today's episode, Hattushili I, that the Hittite Empire begins. But Hattushili lived his entire life without ever hearing the word Hittite. In fact, his entire dynasty would be dead and gone before the word would even be written down in our only source for it, the Hebrew Bible where it doesn't actually refer to the Hittites at all, but rather the tribesmen who came from the ruins of the Neo-Hittite successor states in Syria, a rather complicated situation all around that we are many, many episodes away from untangling. It is something of a historical accident that the name Hittite was ever applied to the late Bronze Age Anatolian Empire, who will come to be the subject of the next chunk of our show, the result of a perhaps over-enthusiastic Bible scholar at the dawn of modern archaeology. And it's important to keep in mind that the Hittites are not, and never will be, some homogenous entity, ethnically or politically. The fragmentary vassal system that we've seen since the earliest days of Kanesha's diplomacy with Mama means that local rulers retain quite a lot of local control, typically ruling over people speaking their same language and carrying their same cultural background, which often is completely different from the kingdom's Nessite ruling class. Ethnically, the ruling elite were Indo-Europeans, unified by their particular dialect, called Nishili, for its presumed origins in Kanesh. But the vast majority of the population they ruled over were of different lineages, and, generally speaking, ethnic tensions within what will become to be the Hittite Empire are very rare. Rebellion and dissent now, those will be common, thanks to the decentralized political structure, but these should almost never be thought of as racial strife in a modern sense, even when they do sometimes happen to fall along linguistic lines. What, then, is the Hittite Empire? 
It is really nothing more than one among many tiny Anatolian kingdoms, operating in a way generally similar to its former neighbors, except that this one will swallow up most of them and create an enduring state out of all this for the next few hundred years. In that sense, the seeds of the Hittite Empire are clearly visible in the oldest tales of Kanesh, in the conquests of Pitana and Anita, and finally in Hattushili I. Though 1650 BCE tends to be the date given for the empire's beginning, I hope we can all see through the twisty path today's episode has followed that there wasn't really a transition from one thing to another. When he dies, Hattushili will be judged by those around him to be a greater conqueror than any Anatolian king who came before him, but very little of what he does will be qualitatively different from what came before. In any case, for all the confusion of what a Hittite really is and what Hattushili would have considered himself, we're going to continue on in the way that's now standard for modern histories of the empire. We're going to discuss the Hittites as if that was really how they self-identified, only pausing to reflect on this when that introduces unsolvable complexities in our story. After all, at this point, Hittite is the name that they're remembered as, and there's really not much point in fighting against the general cultural current of the modern day. And so next week, we will begin at the much more usual beginning of the Hittite Empire. We're going to look at the great King Hattushili I, discuss how he got his name, and then follow him on some of his conquests, and watch him build up his kingdom. So join us next time, as we risk the Storm God's wrath, and see yet another man of Kusara rise to rule over all of central Anatolia. And this time, he just might manage to hold on to it. Thank you for listening.